0: Okay, what do pole dancing, AI chatbots, and diet culture all have in common? They're all topics explored on Embodied, the award-winning weekly podcast from UNC, North Carolina Public Radio. Each week on Embodied, acclaimed journalist Anita Rao tackles difficult conversations around the taboos of sex and health and relationships to answer important questions about our bodies and our society. Just like Reimagining Love, nothing is off limits from the history of hookup culture to an exploration of how mental health affects our relationships. So go ahead and follow Embodied wherever you get your podcasts and make sure that you tell them I sent you. Hello and welcome to Reimagining Love. I'm Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Relationships have the power to wound us and the power to heal us. As a clinical psychologist, author, and professor at Northwestern University, I've devoted my life to studying intimate partnerships and family dynamics. On Reimagining Love, I'm here to translate complex clinical topics into tools and takeaways that you can use in your relationships today. If you're ready to develop relational self-awareness and create vibrant and loving relationships with the people who matter most to you, you've come to the right place. I'm so glad that you're here. Today's episode of Reimagining Love is brought to you by Simon & Schuster in celebration of novelist Monica Ali's new book, Love Marriage. This novel traces the journey of Yasmin Gorami, a 26-year-old doctor in training, just like her Indian-born father, who is engaged to the charismatic, upper-class, and white, Joe Sangster, whose formidable mother, Harriet, is a famous feminist. The gulf between families is vast. So too is the gulf in sexual experience between Yasmin and Joe. Monica Ali is a gloriously acute observer of class, sexual mores, and the mysteries of the human heart, who has written a captivating social comedy and a profoundly moving revelatory story of two cultures, two families, and two people trying to understand one another. Monica Ali's first book, Brick Lane, was a finalist for the Los Angeles Times Book Prize and the National Book Critics Circle Award, and it was shortlisted for the Booker Prize. It was named a Best Book of the Year by the New York Times, Chicago Tribune, the Washington Post, and the Atlantic. It will be abundantly clear to you as you listen to my conversation with Monica that I loved Love Marriage. And as a listener of this show, I think that you will too. You can learn more about love marriage by following the link in the show notes. Go grab your copy wherever books are sold. Welcome to a very special Love Stories episode. This is for the first time on Reimagining Love, a literal Love Stories episode. I love to read books, all types of books, but especially fiction, and I suspect that many of you listening are also bookworms. If that's the case, you're in for a treat. In celebration of her new novel, Love Marriage, I am joined by the acclaimed writer, Monica Ali. Love Marriage is a beautiful book that follows two cultures, two families, and the secrets they keep. I really loved the story and was blown away by Monica's thoughtful exploration of the topics that we so often discuss on reimagining love sexual identity, family dynamics, cultural contexts, and of course, therapy. Monica Ali was born in Dhaka, Bangladesh, and grew up in England. She was named one of the 20 best young British novelists under 40 by Granta. She's the author of four previous novels, including Untold Story and Brick Lane, which was shortlisted for the Booker Prize and the Guardian Book Prize, nominated for the National Book Critics Circle Award and the Los Angeles Times Book Prize, and was named a winner of the 2003 Discover Award for fiction and a New York Times Editor's Choice book that very same year. Monica lives in London with her husband and their two children. This was such a fun conversation, and I love shedding light on a fictional story that explores so many important and fascinating themes, and I loved hearing from Monica herself about her writerly process. Enjoy. Monica, thank you so much for being here today with me.
1: I'm delighted and looking forward to the conversation.
0: I am so excited for us to be here in celebration of your brand new novel, which is called Love Marriage. And I loved this book. It is rich and subtle, and it's thoughtful. It engaged my mind. It engaged my heart. And it was one of those books where as I reached the end, I found myself reading more slowly because I just didn't want it to be over. I did not want to leave the world of these characters. I didn't want to see how you were going to bring it all. I mean, one part of me was curious how you were going to bring it all together. But the other part of me knew that then that would mean that the experience was over. So thank you, first of all, for writing this book. It is gorgeous and wonderful. And I'm so glad that we have it in our world.
1: Oh, thank you. That's music to my ears. I just think that's the highest possible praise when you don't want a book to end. That says it all, really. Thank you.
0: Mm-hmm. So when people ask you, so what is your new book about, Monica? What do you say? How do you talk about this new book, Love Marriage? It's
1: Tells the story of Yasmin Gharami, who is a junior doctor at a big London hospital. She's 26 years old. She's engaged to be married to a fellow doctor, Joe, who is handsome, he's charming, he's rich, he's also very kind and sensitive. But then he does something really shocking he cheats on her. And Yasmin is obviously distraught by this, and she goes off and does something that's even more shocking to herself. She has revenge sex. And Yasmin is someone who's always followed the rules. She thinks of herself as a good girl, a good person with a moral backbone. And she doesn't tell him about this cheating that she's been involved with. So she carries this around as a massive burden of guilt and shame. But what she doesn't know is that Joe is nursing an even bigger secret of his own. So at the start of the book, Yasmin has a life plan all sorted out. She knows what path she's going to follow. And then everything starts to implode and explode from there. So Yasmin's parents are from India originally. Her father is a doctor. Her mother is a stay-at-home mother, Yasmin has done what her father wanted her to do, which is step into his shoes and become a doctor. And she's questioning that choice as well as a lot of other things during the course of this novel. Her younger brother, Arif, is quite a wayward soul. He's different. He rebels. And Yasmin is often feeling quite resentful about his behaviour, and the extra pressures that places on her. So she's getting pressures from family, home, the workplace is a pressured environment where sometimes she faces discrimination and assumptions by other staff and by patients, patients' relatives. And then there's the tangled matter of her love life. Now, I'm totally with you when you say... But sex, I would say, is at a very fundamental level, the propeller of the story. It kind of forms the spine of the story in a lot of ways. So a lot of the turning points in the book hinge on sex in one way or another. And that's not to say there are many sex scenes. There's only a couple of sex scenes. It's not Fifty Shades of gray or anything like that Uh but it's a very important part not only for Yasmin but for other characters as well but for Yasmin in particular her journey if you like of self-discovery sex is a part of that and I think why is sex the driver as I've described it I think it's because It's something that's universal or near universal as a human drive. It's every character's weakness. It's every character's strength. It's how a lot of conflict and drama is evoked in the book through secrets and lies and guilt and shame. um, Or also the opposite in finding freedom and so on. And for Yasmin, it's a really... Serious moral issue when she breaks the rule in this way and she strays. But it's also part of her reacting to what does it mean to live life on one's own terms? To what extent are we constrained by the expectations of others? How much do we hide our own desires and hide those desires even from ourselves? you know so all of that it's not to me a throwaway gratuitous part of the book to me it's really integral to who she is who she could be and how she finds her way in this world
0: it is what you've done so masterfully i have never been and will never be a fiction writer <laughs> so i can only be in awe of the ways in which w- the ways in which you're right sex is woven throughout the book never once in a way that is titillating or gratuitous, as you describe, but that invites us as the reader to explore all these different facets, sex as healing, sex as revenge, sex as an attempt to understand, sex as violence, sex as deceit, all of these different positionalities that we all experience in our own relationships with sex. You insist that we see it as so much more than just a thing that people do, right? That there's Deep meaning about ourselves, about our relationships, about the world, about the messages that the world has told us, right? There's this scene where when Yasmin is sitting with the heaviness of what she's done, you know, she's, she's in a space of, of deep ambivalence about her faith, right? Her mom is Muslim and she's rather devout. And she's sort of always trying to get Yasmin to use more prayer, to use these parables as guideposts in her life, the way that Anissa, the mom, has used them in her own life. And so when Yasmin is in this dark night of the soul, she has this urge to sit with the Quran, right? And she wants to hold the Quran and read a prayer, but she's menstruating. Yes. So she can't. So there again, is this bind between like, the good girl, bad girl split, that even in her desire to be a good girl and grasp the Quran and seek her comfort there, she can't, because she is a bad girl or a dirty girl as a menstruating girl, right? It just is so, like, you do it again and again to us. You force us (laughs) into these moments of, like, the complexity.
1: I also think that it's complex for some of the other characters. So for Joe who is her fiancé. His family is white. There's also a class difference. The Garamis are solidly middle class. The Sangsters are what we would call posh. You know, they're wealthy, upper middle class. All of these freedoms that Yasmin's rather envious on, particularly early on in the book, his mother is a famous feminist. Uh, She's written books. One of the most famous is a memoir that she's written about all her lovers, all the male and female Mm -hmm. lovers. And Yasmin envies this openness. But actually, Joe's (laughs) freedoms, (laughs) I mean, the ironic thing is that things that seem on the surface like freedoms can often be things that bind us and vice (sighs) versa. I think in the book, you know, maybe that ranges from Rania, Yasmin's friend, wearing the hijab, which other people would see perhaps as a symbol of oppression, to her it's a symbol of her freedom to choose to wear what she wants. For Joe and his family, the liberal attitudes around sex represent freedom to Yasmin in the beginning. But Joe is actually at the mercy of his compulsions around sex. And he is anything but free. He's actually imprisoned because he doesn't understand where those compulsions come from. I'm always interested in in looking at, you know, what's on the surface and what lies beneath and the gap between the two.
0: Absolutely. And the ways in which in our culture at large we struggle to hold difference as just difference. We turn those differences into hierarchies. And Mm -hmm. we do have this narrative about freedom and openness about sexuality is better than, you know, discretion and silence around sex. And I think there are ways in which we certainly do need to find a middle ground. But what you've done is you've created this polarity between the Garami family, where there's no conversation about sex. There's just silence And the Sangster family, where there's too much, too much, right? There's so much openness that, as you say, the impact, the legacy on Joe of growing up in this household, where it is the kind of polar opposite of no conversation, it's all conversation, everything's out there for dialogue. The impact on Joe is that he does feel quite imprisoned, right? He's not been able to integrate, like, neither of those poles, silence or rigid boundaries or diffuse boundaries, neither of those poles allows for integration, right? So we see the impact on Yasmin of growing up in a rather repressive culture. She's driven to be this good girl. But we also see the impact on Joe of having grown up in this really diffuse boundaryed family system where his mom's sexuality was too available for him to see and experience, and there was an intrusiveness in their relationship that led to a ton of confusion on his part around what is the function of sex? Who am I versus others? How do I articulate boundaries between myself and others? And he's really quite, as you say, quite imprisoned.
1: You know, we can be really smart as individuals and very perceptive about so many things, but it's oftentimes hard to look outside of your own reality and gaze back on, in on it. So in some ways, you know, that's what can happen within a particular culture, that the culture is so hegemonic that it is all-encompassing, and you can't look inside of that either. So that's something that I'm interrogating in the book alongside the protagonist's personal distance between, (laughs) you know, the reality that they perceive of themselves and what's going on for them. And that's where the therapy comes in for Joe in particular.
0: I want to move into that therapy relationship because you wrote that therapy relationship so beautifully. But I want to ask you first, what is it from your own journey, your own life that leads you to be so devoted to understanding, taking that Outsider perspective in a variety of cultures. Like, why is that so? Why does that matter to you? How did it come to be for you that you have kind of honed that ability to stand in those different positionalities around culture in particular?
1: Well, my own background is that I was born in Dhaka uh in what was then East Pakistan. Um My mother is English, she's white English. She met my father here in the u k and then followed him back very scandalously to Dhaka. Then there was a civil war between East and West Pakistan, and when my brother was five, he's my older brother, and I was three. The Civil War broke out, and we moved to the UK, and I've been here ever since. So, for all intents and purposes, all my life I've grown up here, but with that dual heritage. Right. And when you say of both camps, I think maybe that's where it comes from. And the desire that all children have, I think, to fit in and um, to, so in order to fit in one has to become observant or perhaps even in my case hypervigilant uh, <laughs> because you can tell I've been in therapy now um, but right. I, I think that is <laughs> i think that has probably helped me i feel that it's helped me in my journey as a writer because of that uh it's ingrained in me that That habit of looking closely and observing
0: looking closely and observing that sort of right you that you developed as a young girl in an effort to understand a world that like that didn't always make sense and it was a cope it was a survival strategy I imagine right to be able to observe and to figure out how to How to fit, how to navigate?
1: How how to fit in in um, English society, at school, with friends, and then also how to uh, adapt behaviours for home or for Bengali friends of my father's. Um, You know, you, you have to behave differently according to where you are and who you're with. So I think that's probably part of... I think that know. I think that has informed, in a way, the way that I write. But also, I was always a huge reader. You know, as a kid, it was my escape from a tense household. It was often tense in the household. And just escaping into a book, that was my go-to thing. You know, I always had my head. Even walking down the street, quite often, I'd be reading. And I think that's why also why I write now, because... I find it very hard now to completely lose myself in reading in the way that I could as, say, an adolescent. But when I'm writing, I can totally lose any sense of myself. You know, on on the good days, on the days that it's working, that the writing is flowing, everything else vanishes. Six, seven, eight hours can go by. And I'm just in the head of the characters. And for me, that's still an escape.
0: Absolutely. I have tears on my eyes as you describe reading as your coping strategy as an adolescent. I relate to that so deeply, right? I had my nose in a book all of the time. There's that kinship there that I that I so feel that that was being surrounded by books As I'm finishing a book, figuring out what my next book is going to be like, that was a major through line um, for me, for sure. And in adolescence, absolutely a a way of, yeah, you know, escaping things that were painful and confusing. Mm -hmm. I was thinking um, about I'm I'm imagining the book clubs that will read Love Marriage and imagine the kinds of rich conversations they will have about which characters you know, kind of capture their hearts and which characters they disliked and who they judge. I think to to read with that, what I call relational self-awareness, right? Like noticing our own reactivity to particular characters' choices. Like that's the beauty of fiction, right? Is it gives us a chance to see ourselves more deeply, to imagine what we might do in that same set of situations. And uh, I imagine conversations between between readers of the book about Yasmin's choices, Joe's choices, Anissa's journey, like that there's so, so many opportunities there.
1: Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think there's plenty of opportunity for that. And also, I would add that other than just seeing ourselves and, and other people, we might also just develop empathy for those people who at first clouds we might dismiss or take a dis, an instant dislike to um, based on our assumptions. So there have been some studies actually about if you read fiction, it, incre- it can increase your powers of empathy. And I think that's a great thing in and of itself. And in order for that to happen, I think the writer first has to have exercised <laughs> that power of empathy. So, you know, I'm wondering if that's a little bit similar to, I mean, I know we do completely different things, but I I wonder about that relationship between writing fiction and uh, being a therapist. I mean, do you go through a similar, do you sort of put yourself in your client's shoes or does it work very differently?
0: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think that the heart of any good training program for therapists involves a lot of what we call self of the therapist work, that that work, that it is incumbent upon graduate faculty and graduate clinical supervisors to really hold clinician in trainings feet to the fire around the self of the therapist work, noticing what comes up. In a ther- well, there's two things. It's one, understanding the therapist's own journey, all the lenses that, that we as a therapist bring into the office. So it's why there's one part of your book that I want to read that gets to this point. Um, Joe is in therapy with Sandor, and they're in a therapy session, and Joe is working on his complicated relationship with his mom, and he's expressing his frustration. And Sandor says, give it time. One thing that's helpful to remember is parents frequently replicate the family systems in which they themselves grew up, and do so without knowing it. You told me your grandparents died before you were born, and you don't know a lot about them. You might want to ask some questions. This is Sanders' charge to Joe. You might want to ask some questions. That's what I have done when I've taught in graduate school. Is I have my clinicians in training turn to their family system, and ask some questions. They do this major assignment called the Love Template Interview Assignment. So I've taken hundreds of graduate students through that assignment. And at this point, I've taken thousands of undergraduate students in my undergraduate course through that assignment. They have a set of questions, they turn to their attachment figures, and they talk about the family system that they grew up in. And they talk with their parents about the family systems that they grew up in. So they become ethnographers of their own lineage and that's what Sander is asking Joe to do right Joe sees his mom in all of her complexities and all of her diffuse boundaries and Sander is saying what if you begin to see your mom as your grandparents' daughter as well right that this she comes in to her parenting of you with a particular set of challenges and wounds and traumas so that's all of what a therapist needs to do for themselves to increase their capacity to help their clients do that in their own lives.
1: Yes, Uh, that's fascinating. In the book, there are sort of adult-child-parent relationships, which range from Harriet and Joe's seemingly sort of easy relationship, but anything but, to the difficulties that Arif and Shokat, Yasmin and his father... Uh, encounter consistently throughout the book, where they really are just butting heads with each other. And again, there's there's a whole history there, which, you know, surfaces bit by bit throughout the book. So we know that Showcat comes from um, a very poor
0: background. Showcat is Yasmin's dad.
1: Yasmin's dad. Uh, that he grew up really on the streets of Calcutta in India, uh, made this love marriage to Yasmin's mother. And he's become a success. You know, he's established himself as a doctor in London. Uh, He lives in a comfortable suburb. And yet he has all this rage. And the rage is most often directed against his son, who he sees he sees as a wastrel, he's on a degree in sociology instead of something respectable like accounting or, or medicine. Those are the key things, professions like law, accounting, medicine. Those are the three immigrant go-tos because they're safe options and Arif says he wants to work in television and this is, and he's actually got no job at all and so there's a constant battle between them which becomes explosive at times but beneath Shokat's rage really what emerges is fear right so young Muslim man Arif's father is very aware that Arif is going to face more obstacles, more difficulties. He's already been profiled. Not that he's involved in anything, but he's been profiled. So Show fear emerges as rage, but the fear is based on love, really. Mm -hmm. Love throughout the book is expressed in myriad ways, depending on the context and the family relationship and the history, very crucially, as you say, of those families involved.
0: I'm looking at all of the topics I want to cover with you. I don't have a smooth segue here, but I really feel like I need to talk with you about the sex scene that you wrote that I don't think I ever have read a scene like this in a book where you wrote, you took us into a period sex scene. That I have not, I've not read that before. It was bold. It was um, graphic, descriptive. Right? You wrote about period sex. Tell us why you did that. What was it like for you to write that scene? Why was it important to write a period sex scene?
1: Oh goodness! Well, I have to say, my daughter, who is now twenty-one, um, she read an early copy of the book when she, she was away at university, and when she hit the period sex scene, she called me up and said, <laughs> "Mom, could you? Don't you realise Grandpa was going to read this? Meaning my father.
0: Think about, think <laughs> think about your father. <laughs> <laughs> she, she, she was... Horrified,
1: horrified. <laughs> you can't write with somebody looking over your shoulder. You just never write no. anything in that case. Especially so your
0: dad. <laughs> it's
1: not, not going to work, is it? Um, but, you know, I I was very worried about writing the sex scenes, and there's only really a couple. In my first book, Britt Lane, Nasneen, who is the... Heroine of that. She also has an affair, but it was in keeping with Nazneen's character as a devout Muslim and a very conservative one at that, who had grown up in Bangladesh. That at the point where they are getting into bed, I could draw the curtain, so to speak. You know, we didn't need to see the sex, that was in keeping with her character. Whereas for Yasmin, it's a really essential part of her development and her journey and reckoning with her own desires, reckoning with her, but really with who she is as a woman and the male, female power dynamics and her own sense of volition, her sense of independence. uh, And added to that, she's not only unfaithful, but she also has sex on her period, which is taboo in Islam. So it adds an extra weight to it. Although Yasmin herself is not really religious, she doesn't know whether she believes or what she believes, but culturally she has grown up imbibing and internalizing some of these strictures. So for her to transgress in this way is both horrifying to herself and also deeply liberating. It gives her a sense of possibility, I think, and just a new way to approach her own life and to claim it.
0: Yes, that everything that you're saying makes so much sense. And and I loved also... The response of the man she's with, right, who is (laughs) nonplussed, you know, the way that he handles it is the way that I want every man to, every partner, right? Like, this is the way, this is the way that I want all of us. Like, he does not do a single thing to reinforce or reflect back. Yeah, I mean, Yasmin's got shame. She's got shame about what she's done. She's got shame about the blood. She feels incredibly exposed. And he's just nonplussed about the entire thing, which is exactly exactly how I wanted him to respond and every partner to respond. So it was just beautiful in that way, right? That it was just, it. it, his response really confronted and challenged and subverted her narrative about shame and, you know, disgust.
1: Right. I mean, it looks like a crime scene. Like a crime there's, scene. Bloody, <laughs> <laughs> there's bloody handprints on the wall, and he doesn't turn a hair. He's like, "What it. is? What? Say what? You're a doctor. You're used to blood." <laughs>
0: <laughs> yep. It also, um, you know, we've said before that you write about sex in these ways that just avoid. You know, they're not they're not done for titillation. And I want to read. Um, this one, just these few lines um, where you write, quickly she strips off her dress. She smells her own body, the sweat that has moistened her armpits, the conditioner she used this morning, the musky scent of her sex, the cocoa butter on her legs that she hasn't shaved. And then a few lines down you say, he's going to see her naked. Every imperfection. She has many and she knows without looking that the waistband of her skirt has left an imprint around her belly where it dug into her soft flesh it's it's just so real it's just so real and it's what we experience in those sexual moments that like interplay of i'm in this moment and i'm watching myself in this moment like the fact that you honored that dual consciousness in that way it's just so validating and beautiful and human
1: sex doesn't have to be sort of cinematically gorgeous in order to be glorious. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, um, in my mind, the further you take it into that realm of airbrushed perfectionism, the less you can connect with it because, yeah, as you say, our experience is to be both hyper-aware of ourselves at those moments and also Enter oblivion in some way, right? And that duality is again that's something that I, you know, always enjoy playing with, whether it's in sex or whether it's in the character themselves, because I think that you know, for, for, for Yasmin, there's her personality. You know what we see as what is her perceived personality as this good, rather quiet, rather reserved. Rule-following young woman and her deep character, Hmm. you know what is really deep within her, and also how that plays out between, you know, where where, where does one's character reside? You know, where where is one's self, and that's something I'm always interested in when I'm creating characters. I mean, the idea of a solid self to me doesn't really exist; it's dynamic it's sort of spatially and over time and between people i mean that to me is where character resides and therefore it's always changing yes. so you know we talk about all oh, this char- this is what yasmin's character is like well yasmin's character only reveals itself in who she's with and what she does and you know that those interactions
0: that to me is character That is so much the heart of therapy, I feel, right? Because very often as a client and I are deepening and widening their story of themselves, we have to also always honor the self that was, right? As the self changes, I think one of the challenges is as the self changes, as we grow, as we expand, we can look back at the self from one or two or 10 years ago and be be critical right but that wasn't a that wasn't a false self that was the self that was doing the best at that time and that's what you you're right each of these characters has this arc and as we get to as we watch them peel back a layer of their story of their own self-awareness it's done really gently and it's done in ways where we can still hold compassion for where they started and why they started there. And that it wasn't that that was fake or bad or wrong. That was just what was true then. And then life happened and there was growth and then more life happened and there was more growth. And that's so true for all of us. And it feels very resonant with the journey of therapy. Okay. So when you are writing about Joe and his therapist, Sander, At some point pretty early on in those scenes of that therapy relationship, I wrote a a note in my margin that said Gabor, meaning Gabor Mate, because something you had written was like, oh, that is just so in keeping with how Gabor Mate would frame this moment of understanding addiction as a way of coping with pain. And then later on, I was like, let me just go ahead and peek at the acknowledgements. And in the acknowledgements, you write about your research. And there you are writing about having read Gabor Mate. So you wrote with such sophistication about the therapy relationship. So I would love to hear about your research process, what you felt you needed to learn to write that relationship, and then how you translated it to Joe and Sandor, who both, by the way, we get to see, we get inside of Sandor's mind as well as inside of Joe's mind. So you let us see the process from Sandor, the therapist's perspective, as well as from Joe. So that's really special too. But tell us about your research.
1: So research was an awful lot of reading. Gabor Mate, you rightly identified, very impressive, uh, <laughs> from the get-go. <laughs> uh, yeah, he. I mean, he was a, b- a big influence on the kind of analysis that Sandor, my therapist character, does with Joe his understanding of addiction and where it comes from and um, how to treat it effectively I've also you know I've read a number of other authors I mean internal family therapy systems um, lots, of Dorothy Bell, lots of, yeah Richard Schwartz so I, I've done an awful lot of reading but also I think crucially I've been in therapy for a number of years myself. And I think without that, it would have been much harder to conjure those scenes. Now you mentioned that part of it, part of that um, those chapters with the two of them is from Sandor's perspective. And that really comes from, you know, sitting in the therapy room and wondering.
0: What's she thinking right now?
1: Yeah. What is, How I, 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 I... <laughs> Sandor isn't based on, on my therapist. I mean, she's a woman. She's a completely, completely different sort of therapist as well. I was in therapy for sex addiction, <laughs> I'd like to just point out quickly. Right.
0: <laughs> no judgment.
1: <laughs> Nevertheless, I think that experience did feed in To my ability to write those scenes. Because at times I'd sit there and think, is she bored? (laughs) Is my mind wondering? Is she, not that she was giving me any sign, but it's human nature. It's not, I mean, you sit there listening to other people's problems and you've got your own life. And you've got your own things that m- must inevitably sometimes pop into your head. The best of therapists, that must happen to. And so Sandor is, you know, he, he might be completely, utterly laser focused on Joe, which he is most often. I mean, I, I think he's, you know, I portray him as a very dedicated, mm-hmm. effective therapist. And yet he's thinking about, you know, when he's going to see his son again or his own Mm -hmm. health problems or sometimes, and this is something I've wondered when I've sat in therapy, he knows where it's going or he thinks he knows where it's going and he's listening Mm -hmm. but also sort of thinking ahead. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's just pure fiction or whether those things actually happen, but I had all of those thoughts as a a therapy you know sitting in the, the chair opposite I was having those thoughts so that's where that idea came from for Sandor that I didn't want him to be a blank reflecting wall I wanted him to although we only see him in the therapy room I wanted him to be a real person
0: yeah and we do we see we get to right understand his process and how right and his some of his feelings specifically about Joe's resistance, which that is just a part of most therapy relationships, specifically therapy relationships. I I think that when we're working on addiction, looking towards the past, like kind of having to do that deeper work, understandably, clients are hesitant or conflicted or wondering like, what is the, why do I have to get so uncomfortable? In fact, there's a part, I wanted to just read this little part where, um, Joe says to Sander, all this stuff that we're talking about, my childhood, all that, how will it actually help? We get to the root of the addiction, but what then? Does it mean that I'll be able to control it, that I'll be cured? He smiles to undercut the desperation in his question, in his voice. Then Sander says, it's not quite so simple, I'm afraid. And then Joe says, then why is it so important to know? Why is it like this holy grail? Because it shortens the odds against us, said Sander. It affords us the opportunity to take control because what we don't know controls us. It's those moments that we as therapists like dream about having where we can be so pithy, like at the same time, he's doing a little bit of like psychoeducation. He's sort of educating him on the idea that the stuff that we're not conscious of or aware of rules our lives, while he's also offering affirmation right it shortens the odds against us so he's seeding some hope and some optimism and he's trying to like work gently with joe's resistance and skepticism which he has to do quite often because this is hard it's hard for joe right he he's ambivalent about being in therapy and uh and looking at all this stuff so he just it's really well written
1: from my own experience of being in therapy, I was quite resistant i mean i you know I wasn 't that I was ignorant about the therapeutic process, or I knew that childhood was likely to come up. But I felt very impatient with that. You know I was really wanting to like get fixed i 've got anxiety issues um, i 've got a, a a sort of dread of writing because it heightens my anxiety teach me the skills, six, eight sessions, let's, you know, let's knock it on the head. And of course I knew that we were going to get to childhood or that that was almost inevitable. But really I didn't want to go there for all sorts of reasons or excuses because it's hard, because it's hard to go there, because it's uncomfortable, as you say, because I don't want to take myself back to places that are difficult because I've constructed a, a long-held narrative about what doesn't kill us makes us stronger and therefore <laughs> everything's to the good and I don't want to unravel that deal no. that I've done with myself.
0: <laughs> um, it works. It keeps us very productive <laughs> and just moving, moving in the right direction.
1: Just moving. Yeah, you're like a shark. you know, you got to keep moving, otherwise you're going to die. So <laughs> keep going. Um, so... You know, I figured that if as a reasonably smart person myself, I could be resistant to that, even knowing that, you know, the theory. I figured that Joe might also have some of that same resistance. And my therapist was very good at just, she'd drop in little ideas, little hints, well, they were big actually, but she'd do them in a very light way. That's, yeah, okay, that's sort of interesting. But inside I was thinking, no she doesn't have the first clue i am not like that that is not me and then i go away and think about it <laughs> i come back and say, oh did you it. Know what I think you said <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, it's the power of the relationship right like it's that it's such a powerful relationship and yes there there may be times when she has a little Thought that comes into her mind, but I imagine that I can just imagine what those moments must have been like for her, also. Right? There's so much care. I mean, when I think about like my when I think about the privilege that it is to get to sit with somebody in their story, gently and slowly. Um, it's just as I say. It's like nothing else. But perhaps it's a little bit like writing fiction. Yeah, it is. I can imagine. Right? That she she's got to titrate. What you're ready for, how to say it to you in a way that you can hear and yeah,
1: yeah, I mean maybe it's a little bit like writing fiction, you said it, <laughs> and that stri- that strikes me yeah. as um, sort of chiming with what you said a little bit earlier, which is patients clients come to see you with a narrative, their own individual narrative, the narrative of their relationship. The family narrative and so on, and then you sort of create a, a new one, right? That's what, that's what you seem to be saying to me at least, and I guess that's what you know you, you're sort of doing as a as a when you're writing a novel, because certainly Yasmin enters the book, enters the story with one set of narratives about herself, about her family, about the the love marriage of the title, which is the marriage between her parents. And by the time we come to the end of the novel, she has a different story or a, and a different understanding of the old stories. There's maybe a little bit of a parallel there.
0: There a hundred percent is absolutely. That's a very it's a really powerful parallel. It's funny, you know. A few moments ago, I flashed on this thing that I've said a number of times in my career. Like if if I start three therapy relationships, you know, a new couple, a new individual. Another new couple. If I start a few therapy relationships like around the same time, I will say, like, it feels like starting three books at once. Like, it, getting to know a client is very much like reading a book and that feeling of like what it feels like when you crack open a new book and you're just at the beginning. Like, there's such, um, there's so much uncertainty. There's so, so much unknown. You're beginning this journey and it's very powerful, those parallels. Yeah. Before I let you go, you tell us. Who was the most difficult character for you to write? Well, let me back up by saying, you do something that is is a choice point that you you needed to make as a writer. You write from four different perspectives. You let us into Joe's mind, Yasmin's mind, Harriet's mind, and Sanders' mind. So you, and then there's other characters who we get to know, but we actually get inside of those four in particular who was the most challenging for you? Oh,
1: well, it's interesting that you say that we get we get inside four minds because I think we get three different perspectives. We get Yasmin's, Harriet's, and Sandor's, and it's only through Sandor's perspective oh. that we get into Joe's head. You say right. So that was a key Thing that I struggled with. Oh, that's so, with. you're so good. You made me
0: think I got inside Joe's mind, but I didn't. That's fascinating. You're right. We never do get inside Joe's mind. Oh, Monica, you're so good. Okay, go ahead. That was one sort of the,
1: Well, you know, you sort of gave me the answer to your own question, actually, because I would have struggled otherwise to identify it. But it was that decision about how do we get Joe's story without being in his perspective. The question was, how was how are we going to feel close to him, know enough about him, without being inside his head? And Sandor was the solution to that problem. And then, actually, he wasn't a difficult character to write. But, you know, that gave me
0: trouble at the start. Fascinating. Do you have note cards? Like, how do you track your flat lines. Like, can you just give us a little window into how you keep track of all these pieces and these threads?
1: Yeah, I mean, for me, everything about writing comes from character. So as long as I know the character well enough before I start to write, and I know that the other big decision is whose perspective are we in. So that really That's a lot about the writing. If I know the characters and I know which characters' perspectives I'm going to be taking, the rest doesn't happen totally organically, as in it's completely easy. I mean, I struggle and I have to go back. And there's a sort of analytical, apart from the creative side, there's an analytical, intellectual part of writing a novel, fitting everything together, you know, as you would have to do in your non-fiction yeah. writing. You have to structure the book. You have to make the parts work together. And I have to say that with previous novels, those two things have always sort of worked hand in hand. So by the time I've got to a final or first draft, it's been pretty much the shape and the finished book. And that's because I edit as well as I go along. But with this novel, I just kept writing and writing. Once I had the opening line, the characters and the perspectives, I sort of knew where it was going, but really I was letting the characters take me there in whatever way they would. And I really, really worried that this, um, this is the wrong process, this isn't my process, I'm writing too much, I'll never be able to cut it down... But then actually when it came to editing and cutting, it was totally fine. It was, the structure was there. I just had to carve it out of this wall of words that I'd written. And I learned from that hmm. that it's not about having my set process. It's about what each particular book demands or requires. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And this book demanded that I let go. (laughs) And Uh um, I think think, think it worked.
0: It absolutely worked. I am so glad that you let go, that you surrendered into this book, because it's a gorgeous offering. And I know it's going to land so well to the Reimagining Love community. It is so many sweet spots that we love to explore and visit on this show. So it's, it's just the perfect book for you and I to talk about. And I'm so grateful for your time and your brilliance. And I'm so glad that we got a chance to connect in this way.
1: Oh, I've absolutely loved talking to you, Alexandra. It's been a great, great pleasure. Thank you.
0: On this show, we send people to bookshop.org here in the US, which will Route folks to their local indie booksellers, which are oftentimes BIPOC owned independent bookstores. So we will link um, Love Marriage through bookshop.org, but no matter where in the world you're listening, Love Marriage is available. And tell us how else? How else can folks learn more about you, your prior books? Where's a good place for people to go?
1: Uh, they could go to my website, which is just MonicaAlley.com. Wonderful. That's
0: great. Thank you so much, Monica.
1: Oh, thank you again, Alexandra. It's really been fun talking to you. Likewise.
0: Whether you have been listening to Reimagining Love since the show's inception or you're a newer listener, I really value your feedback about the show and your listening experience. Now that we are six months in, my team has launched a survey that will help us envision the evolution of the show and continue to produce episodes that you will love. The survey can be found in the show notes or at DrAlexandraSolomon.com survey, and it will take you about five minutes to complete. By filling out the survey, you will be automatically entered into a raffle, and the winner will receive signed copies of both of my books, Loving Bravely and Taking Sexy Back, and a $50 credit toward any of my online courses. Thank you so much in advance for taking the time to share your thoughts and to help us grow this show. It really means a lot. Thank you to Monica for being here with me on Reimagining Love. It was such a pleasure to chat about the complex and deeply human characters of Love Marriage with the author herself. I hope that you will feel compelled to pick up a copy of Love Marriage at your indie bookseller after May 3rd or pre-order it through the link in our show notes today. Happy reading and be well. Do you have a relationship question that you want to have answered on the show? Follow the link in the show notes of this episode to send in a written or audio question. Questions can be about intimate partnerships, family relationships, friendships, you name it. I can't wait to hear from you.